Welcome to the SMB Community Podcast with your hosts, Amy Babinchak, James Kernan, and Carl Polichuk. Produced by and for the Small Biz Thoughts community. We're dedicated to making every IT professional a successful IT professional. Are you still using an on-prem file server and VPN to share files with remote workers? Ignite is a business class cloud sharing solution that works more like your on-prem server than other solutions. With a security first approach to file sharing and collaboration, Ignite offers multiple options for sharing files and collecting files from outside sources. And do it all addressing data governance and compliance. Want to learn more? Check out ignite.com slash MSP radio. And when you do, tell them we sent you. Hi, this is Carl with another SMB Community Podcast. I'm joined today by Suzanne Tedrick, who is, among other things, uh, an author and a uh, an about to be a second time author, and also uh, she works with Microsoft, and she is a, uh, a what is your exact title? You're a cloud strategist. <laughs> uh, no, right, well, that's part of my uh, part of my role, but it's uh, Azure Infrastructure Specialist. Azure Infrastructure Specialist. All right, so we we will come back to that. Uh, we were just joking about how uh, oh we we get to actually do some work here. Uh, I know Suzanne from a few different things. One is that I interviewed her when her first book uh, came out, and that uh, is a great little book if you haven't seen it, Women of Color in Tech, a Blueprint for Inspiring and Mentoring the Next Generation of Technology Innovators, which I also have to say, like as a side note, I think it's an awesome book for anybody who's looking for a job in IT, uh, male, female, <laughs> whatever. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, anyway, so that's that book. And then you have another book coming out. Um, but first, let me let me back up and just let you give an introduction of who you are and how you got here and all that. <laughs> well, Carl, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back again. Um, so I am, as I said, an Azure infrastructure specialist at Microsoft. Um, essentially, what that means is I concentrate on uh, selling the compute network and storage aspects of the Azure platform. I specifically concentrate on, from an industry standpoint, uh, for the major sports teams and leagues. Uh, so looking at their cloud consumption and you know what the cloud ultimately looks like uh, for them um, on a more personalized level in terms of, in terms of their, their strategy. Um, prior to this, I was a technical specialist at IBM Cloud. Um, you and I worked together on the CompTIA Advancing Tech Talent and Diversity Executive Council, which has been um, phenomenal. And uh, yeah, my uh, you know my journey here has, was an interesting one. <laughs> I uh, you know was uh, I was working in administration and operations roles for a good number of years before I uh, made the transition into technology. Uh, which is what the book Women of Color in Tech is based off of my uh, my journey into tech and my successes, my failures, and 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 everything in between. <laughs> <laughs> so that everybody, you know, uh, any woman of color who you know has that spark and that interest in working in technology, um, giving them some some guidance so that their journey uh, is a little easier. Well, and you know, the good news is the older you get, the less you see those things as failures, and more as just either uh, experiences, bumps in the road, bricks that built you who you are, <laughs> so forth. 
exactly. I do want to just a side note ask, is it different working with Azure versus the IBM cloud? Oh, that's a great question. And I'm going to be as um, diplomatic as I can possibly be <laughs> with regard to that question. Um, it is different from both a user experience perspective and from a capability perspective. Um, IBM, uh, Microsoft, as well as Amazon and Google um, all have differentiated offerings when it comes to, to cloud. And if you've had any experience um, with them, you'll know that some are probably, you know, like you'll pick up on it very quickly and others um, probably need to be a little bit more technically savvy. Um, and with each platform, there's um, something unique to all of them that differentiates them from uh, everybody else um, in terms of offerings, in terms of security, in terms of you know, industry knowledge. Um, so there's definitely different aspects for sure. Um, and I do try to talk about that a lot with clients in that um, while the technology may be the same from platform to platform, um, there are different nuances um, and strengths that come with each one. All right. Well, that was very diplomatic. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, you never know when the uh, the legal and compliance teams are uh, are watching. <laughs> exactly. But luckily, see, I work for a very small business, so I, I am all those teams, and I, you know, I, I can I can make judgment calls on the fly. So, uh, so, uh, so let's talk uh, real quick about your previous book, and then I want to talk about your your new book. So, Women of Color in Tech. Uh, how do you go to market with that? How do you describe that to people when they say, hey, tell me about your book? Um, so I have two different tracks um, depending on the audience. Um, so when we're, we're talking specifically about women of color, I talk a lot about the commonalities that we face being in the industry. It's not just a matter of gaining professional skills and technical skills. Um, to get the job. Um, it's really talking about the, the other facets that come with it. So having support, you know, having mentors, having sponsors that are going to actually advocate for you when you're not in the room, um, knowing how to deal with challenges. And then quite frankly, knowing how to deal with some of the well-known things such as microaggressions, biases, and, you know, and and even performative allyship, which you know may on the surface feel like someone's helping you, um, when it actually might be the antithesis of what they actually need. So really, just talking very one-on-one, -on -one and these are my experiences, and here's what worked for me, and what I think will work for you as well. When I talk to the secondary group, it's usually people who want to be advocates for women of color in the tech industry, people who, you know, they, they want to be helpful, they want to advance more women of color, people of color, um, and advancing diverse tech uh, pipelines, um, but they don't know how to. And part of that is because there's not a clear understanding of what the challenges are. Um, and again, it's really talking about the, the lack of opportunity in some places 
It's talking about, you know, again, microaggressions and biases and imposter syndrome. Um, it's talking about, you know, what it means to be an ally, ally being a verb versus, you know, something that you would describe a person. Um, you know, really talking like, well, these are the things if you want to be helpful, these are the things that you want to think about and to start that dialogue. Right. Well, I mean, and I can be completely honest with you because we sit on the Advancing Tech Talent and Diversity uh, EC together. Uh, Suzanne is the president of that currently. And um, I literally, I can never know what it's like to be either a woman or black. Like, it's just like, that's beyond my capability. Uh, So I try to be an ally. And, you know, it's funny. It's one thing to talk about microaggressions, but we live in a time and in uh, an industry where there just are not that many blacks and there are not that many women in IT. I mean, you take the combination of those two and you go from, you know, a rock solid, you know, 10, 15% down to, I don't know, 3%, um, 1%. So there's, there's a lot of things keeping women and, and people of color out of technology. And it may be, it's not intentional, but it's really hard to look at the numbers and say it's it's not, you know, at all intentional, right? There's there's got to be something there, and so uh, no matter where anybody is on the political spectrum, I just I encourage them to realize something's going on, and we are in this industry, and the something it has to do with us, right? So, uh, <laughs> and and of course. You know, as a middle-aged white guy, uh, I mean, what can I say except tell me what to do because I have no idea how to help. You yeah, know? yeah, and 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 that's um, I think that's to be honest, what it takes to to be um, a good ally and not like you don't have the answers and you're not going to necessarily know all the time. You know that experience for uh, that person of color, that woman of color but it's more of taking the time to stop and say, I don't know, I want to get better, how do I help, um, is, is a step in the right direction. And you're, and you're right, you know, when you look at the numbers, you know, when we, companies release their, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion numbers, it's kind of a persistent pattern that, you know, you have to stop and ask yourself, well, what is going on here? <laughs> and that's a very, hard thought-provoking questions. Well, I recently did a podcast, this podcast with uh, Dave Sobel, who um, every quarter picks, I think it's 300 companies and looks at their, the, the people that they present on their websites as representing their company. Like this is our board or this is our company or whatever. And he just counts the number of people who look like they're not white males. And uh, after six quarters of doing this, there's no change. And it might be getting a little bit worse. So there's still there's still plenty of work to be done. And I just I think it it starts with realizing there's something there. You know, like as simple as that sounds. You know, if you if you haven't reached that point yet, <laughs> try to get there. Exactly. So so tell me about the new book, which you now. And I have to say, as an author, did your publisher come to you and say, I need another book, sign here, and here's a, here's a co-author and an editor, and now make it happen? <laughs> uh, no, um, this was this is actually born a lot out of um, conversations that were happening from women of color in tech, 
um, and part of the conversation that was taking place from the webinar series that I host for Wiley that talks about diversity and tech. Um, and so the, the, the book in question, um, the, the going title right now is Innovating for Diversity. And I have the, the pleasure of co-authoring with Bettina, Bertina Ceccarelli, who is the CEO of the nonprofit Empower. Um, and Bertina was actually a, uh, a, one of my first guests on uh, my first webinar for Wiley. Um, and yeah, we worked together a lot uh, during the release of Women of Color in Tech um, in uh, 2020. Um, so we have a we have a we have a relationship. We've gotten to know each other really, really well. <laughs> so, so it's it's far more organic than I made it sound. <laughs> so innovating for diversity, and so so, what what do you mean by innovating? Talk about yeah. that for a second. Sure. Um, so the premise of our book is talking a little bit about like so the issue that we brought up with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion when we look at the numbers you know, we see that it still persists. And what Bertina and I are attempting to do with this book is talking about how by using innovation principles such as curiosity, risk, um, and, and a number of other uh, principles there, um, using those to help improve diversity, equity, and inclusion programs within organizations and supporting that with a number of case studies with selected companies and organizations that we've reached out to who um, are sharing their DEI journey, um, good, bad, and indifferent, um, and offering those lessons learned for other people who want to move the needle in terms of their uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And is this geared primarily towards enterprise, mid-market, or SMB, or somewhere, <laughs> some combination <laughs> of those? Um, I, I would say it's, it's some combination of. I, I think what we're what we're trying to say here is that it doesn't necessarily take um, an entire uh, DEI um, department to institute change. Um, it's more of a matter of you as a leader in your organization, no matter where you stand, um, really being intentional about your DEI practices reaching out to the right people who can help amplify what you're trying to do um, and being um, brave, being bold um, in, in taking some steps towards that. Um, you know, I, may, I make it no secret that um, diversity work is not easy uh, at all. Uh, during the start of writing the book, uh, I ran across the statistic that the tenure of most chief uh, diversity officers in most organizations is barely three three years altogether because it's hard. It's very hard work. Right. And you know when when we think about the the civil unrest that happened in 2020 um, with the uh, the death of George Floyd um, that really you know made things far more pronounced. Um, and, and so you can just understand that the toll um, that this this work takes. It's very mentally. Um, physically and, and at times emotionally uh, draining. Um, but it, it is work that needs to be done if we are really talking about not only bringing more diverse populations into not even just tech, but in many other industries that have the same challenges, um, but really 
speaking about that inclusivity and belonging part, really talking about, okay, you've got this pipeline coming in, but what are you doing to help grow them, advance them, help them to achieve, you know, more opportunity promotions? Um, what are you doing to make sure that they don't want to leave not only your organization, but the, but the industry as a whole? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, you know, the, there was just recently a number from Forster about the average span of a channel chief is right in the neighborhood of three years. So, you know, it depends on the, the organization, but two to four years and a channel chief has turned over. Uh, now, if it's also the case that in somewhere in there about three years, uh, a diversity chief has turned over and, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of turnover at the top in that time span. So it's almost like, how do you make any progress when you're just going to be flipping from one job to the next, whether you move into or out of the DEI uh, arena or uh, executive um, arena altogether? Um, you know, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's very, and you're absolutely right. Because if you see that turnover, you know, getting any traction in any one direction can be, can be difficult. But even the tenure of, I think, chief diversity officers speak to that larger problem of the, the inclusivity part and what organizations are doing from a cultural standpoint to really nurture people in some of the work that they, that they have to do. Um, you know, because some of it, again, is much harder than others. With, with DEI, yes, there are key performance indicators and metrics that you can you can assess the um, the success of your program, uh, but nonetheless, it's you know it's not exactly quantitative. It's more it's more qualitative, and so it's yeah. There's a lot more going on going on there, um, and so it takes a whole organization to kind of think about this holistically versus this is just the function of HR. Right. This is, oh this yeah. Is, yeah. This is that. That's what they do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I got to say, one of the one of the few jobs I would never want to do would be HR, right? I'm literally sort of, it starts out with like nurse and then HR, right? <laughs> those are the two things like, I'm glad those people exist. I'm glad I don't have to do either one of those jobs. So, you know, I, at one point I, I wanted to be in HR and, and, and then um, I think I slowly started to realize what HR was, was becoming in most organizations which was more compliance based versus, you know, actually caring about the human. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, I've, I've worked for, for large organizations uh, and, and I recently had a conversation with somebody who was saying, Oh, what, what should my employee handbook look like? I'm starting a small business. It's just me and two people and whatever. What should my employee handbook look like? And I'm like, it should look like a post-it stamp. Make it as small as possible because when you look at the HR manuals for large corporations, it's literally dealing with the stupidest, worst parts of humanity. Right? It's like the person who takes their their time off in fifteen minute increments so so they can just come into work late every day. You know, it's like oh my god. Anyway, yeah, there was yeah. I just when you said that, I was thinking about one place in particular where it, on the, the previous employer literally within the first five pages, they described that um, we will pay for your rehab fees 100%. And I'm like, 
why is this here? <laughs> and that probably should have been a sign. So. Right, right. Yeah, it may be the first thing you should do when you're looking for a job is read their employee manuals and all. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so so let's get back to work. So so you help folks to uh, figure out the right stuff to buy at with with Azure Cloud. Now, do you work with SMBs, or do you do you have advice for SMBs who are trying to figure out the Azure Cloud environment? So it's funny you mentioned that. So um, I work with. Um, as I said, major uh, sports teams and leagues. And so when we're thinking about the leagues, they're not, you know, they're not small enterprises. Right. They are, you know, their, their GDP is more of that than most developing nations. So we're definitely not <laughs> dealing with someone that's like, you know. <laughs> the payroll for their players is more than the GDP of some nations. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, when we, when we start getting more at the team level, it does start to mimic what I see more in the small to medium-sized business space. Um, these are place organizations that don't necessarily have um, a ton of resources from an IT operations perspective. Uh, there might be two or three people who are, you know, handling IT operations, but they're also responsible for innovation projects. They're also responsible for um, security, compliance, you know, what have you. Um, and they're all trying to do things yesterday. Um, and they don't necessarily have the budget. And so um, my conversations have to be very, um, well, always meeting them where they are you know, in their journey, right. but always keeping that in mind that just because it happens to be a, a high profile, high, highly visible name, it doesn't mean that they you know, have all of these resources at their disposal. Um, and they're, you know, they've got to work with as, much as they can with, with as little as they have. Right. So uh, obviously leagues are huge uh, and they run massive, massive programs. So, but the average team, it's, it's almost like, uh, uh, I guess the closest of, of my experience would be having a client who's in agriculture where they have lots of employees or manufacturing. They have lots of employees, but most of them don't use the computers, right? They, or, you know what I mean? They, they go do other stuff. And so you've got the core front office. How big is that? Uh, the, the number of people who actually are using computer systems on a daily basis, is it 20, 50, a hundred kind of what's um, the ballpark? So for- it really does depend on the, the, the team in question. Um, for some, it may be, let's say 20 people at most that they're supporting, but for others, it might be closer to a hundred. And, and again, just depending on, you know, how their particular organization happens to be. Right. And, and have they mostly moved to the cloud already or are you helping them migrate from on-prem to cloud? So majority are still on-prem and looking to make that first initial leap into the cloud space. And so um, a lot of that conversation, it, obviously, it's the cloud computing 101, understanding infrastructure platform and software as a service, um, public, private, hybrid cloud, you know, all of those core concepts, but really walking them through, you know, what does cloud look like specifically for what you're trying to accomplish 
versus what your league is trying to accomplish because right. those are very, very different conversations right. altogether. So, and do, do most of them have somebody uh, either in-house or outsourced as their IT professionals? Um, again, it depends. Um, for some of them, they will use like a managed service provider because they're just like, I don't, I don't want that headache. I don't want that responsibility. Um, but for others, it's more, you know, I want to try to retain as much of that as possible to reduce costs. Um, but then the flip side of that is, again, do you have the technical resources to be able to even have this discussion? Are they, are they skilled in cloud, you know, in any way? Um, do they know about different um, migration options? Um, would they know how to refactor certain applications or workloads if necessary? Um, all of these things kind of come into play when, when we're having these conversations. And did, is their work as seasonal as, uh, I'm an outsider, so as, <laughs> as seasonal as an outsider would think it is, that they have like, they're, they're, they're busier during a certain season and, uh, you know, or ticket sales are busier at a certain point, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, certainly like in season, for sure. They're, they're definitely, um, you know, having to deal with game day, making sure that, you know, things are working the way that they, that they should. Um, but taking that back a little bit, they're working nonstop um, because, again, it's the larger conversation of how do I innovate um, to not only be on par with what other teams are doing because, you know, they are like they are in competition with one another in one degree right. or another. Um, but then also making sure that the costs are not running away from something that they can manage. Right. So um, how do you, when you work with the, let's say it's an MSP, but, uh, you know, a local IT service provider, uh, do you find that you spend a fair amount of time educating them on, on, on Azure cloud and sort of? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, and, and, that's, and I don't mean that. I actually don't mean that negatively. When I think about you know, my own experiences learning Azure, um, it, it doesn't come easily. It takes a lot of time um, to learn all of the, the products and the services that are offered on there. There's like 600 services and growing. Right. Um, and some of them have steeper learning curves, you know, than, than others. Um, and so sometimes with all of the changes that happen, uh, definitely spend a lot more time with the, with the education piece versus the selling piece, because sometimes you just have the level set of, this is what we can do for you. We can't do this for you. <laughs> right, right. Well, and uh, my guess is uh, everybody comes in with experience for Office 365, which turns out to be this tiny little box of what this, what's available. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not directly related to Azure, right? So, so there are synergies between Office 365, um, our modern work offerings, um, uh, Windows, and you know, we're, we're what we're trying to do here is make it a little bit more unified so that you can kind of see those areas that all connect um, with, with one another. But to your point, like if, if we're talking about Office productivity, that's obviously going to be in the Office domain. If we're talking about developing cloud-native applications, 
that probably will be an Azure discussion. And uh, you may get, you may not want to answer this question, but do you ever <laughs> encourage people to say, no, we just can't make this work. You should stay on-prem. Just go buy another server. As tough as it is to say that from, from a sales perspective, um, you have to do what's right for the client at the end of the day. Um, and it isn't so much a, a, a cost issue, but what is the likelihood of this person's success doing this? Because the last thing I would want to see is a client, you know, spending all of this time and effort and money, but the culture isn't there. Like the way how you, the way how you consume cloud versus the way how you consume traditional IT is very different and it requires a different mindset. And if you're already kind of going in with a very fixed mindset of this is, you know, how it is, I question, you know, on some level, like, is this going to be a successful adoption or migration for you? So sometimes there, there are difficult conversations that need to be had. And if, if it is a matter of like, I don't think this is a good fit, um, you know, as hard as it is to say, I do say it. Very good. Well, sadly, we're just about out of time, but let me get back to the personal side of things and ask, have you spent much time in the, in the Microsoft office in New York? Because I know you're oh. based in New York City. <laughs> so um, sadly, no. I started during the pandemic. So my, my laptop got delivered to my house um, and I had to kick my husband uh, out of the bedroom for my first uh, call with my boss. Um, but I, I've, I've gone there about five times. It's gorgeous. Um, views are fantastic. Um, and hopefully now that we're, uh, we're getting to a place where we're fully reopened, um, we'll definitely be going in a, a lot more. Well, with luck, I'll get there sometime in December and uh, we can go uh, have a drink and then go down to Rockefeller Plaza and see the tree and uh, all that. Oh, that I, would be awesome. <laughs> I, I love the area around the Microsoft office and the, uh, the local IT pro user group there, um, they meet at the Microsoft office. So that's always a fun evening because they they meet for like four hours. So <laughs> Yeah, no, I was actually going to suggest when you do come in, I'll also take you to um, the Microsoft garage, which is a really neat place to ideate and, you know, play with oh. stuff. There's a 60 inch uh, surface uh, touchscreen uh, there's a 3D printer. I mean, there's, there's, it's just so much fun. So <laughs> the Microsoft Garage. All right. All right. You, you got a deal. Very good. Well, uh, Suzanne, thank you for being with us today. We're going to put your links uh, down below. And uh, with luck, uh, Innovating for Diversity will be out in 2023. And uh, we'll have you on again and, and you can promote your book. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carl. Always a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the SMB Community Podcast. If you found this useful, interesting, or fun, please subscribe, share with your friends, and give us a thumbs up on your favorite social media. Please check out the show notes at smbcommunitypodcast.com and give us your feedback.